We'll hear argument this morning in Case 09337, Krupski v. Costa Crociere, SPA. Mr. Bender. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case revolves around Rule 15C1C of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. In pertinent part, if two subsections are, are satisfied, the rule permits relation back of an amendment adding a new defendant after expiration of the limitations period. The courts below found, and respondent does not question, that we satisfied the first subsection, notice and no prejudice. That arose from the service of the original complaint upon Costa Cruz, the agent and corporate affiliate represented by the same attorney as respondent Costa Crociera. Do you know, Mr. Bender, what exactly the corporate relationship was between the two? No, Your Honor. Not the corporate relation. The functional relationship as described in the affidavit is that Costa Cruz is the booking agent for Costa Crociera, and for the notice procedure, uh, according to the affidavit of Mr. Klotz, Costa Cruz engaged the uh, IRSI Adjustment Service to resolve claims uh, arising on the ship. So in that respect, it was also, in our view, an agent of Costa Crociera. But the specific corporate relationship is not known. Thank you. Because of that uh, timely service on Costa Cruz, we satisfied the first subsection. And as this Court noted in Chavon, timely service on one defendant may serve to be to give imputed notice to a related defendant, which is what we have here. Counsel, your your client tripped over the cable, right? Correct. What if the case were there were two people behind her and she was pushed, and she didn't know which one pushed her, Jones or Smith? So she sues Jones, and Smith knows all about it because, of course, he's a key witness or whatever. And can he be substituted later on uh, because he was the person she should have sued? If you're talking about a lack of knowledge of the real name, probably not just the real name. It's not that Jones pushed her, but his real name is Johnson. It's that Jones, whoever pushed her, I forget, but one guy, <laughs> one of the people pushed her, and she named that person, uh, she named the other person. She made a mistake about who pushed her. Can you have substitution in that case? I would say yes, because, it, again, assuming that all of the other criteria are satisfied. Yeah, the, the, the non-pusher has notice yeah. and everything else, right. um, but there's no relationship between the two of them. It, it's, a, it's obviously a slightly different and, and more difficult case from our perspective. But what I think is critical is the status that's involved. In this particular case, the suit was filed against the vessel operator. And that vessel operator was identified as Costa Cruz when we know that the actual identity was Costa Crociera. What was the first, when was your first notice of that? I mean, it was on the first page of the ticket, but uh, the answer came after the statute of limitations. Correct. Was that your first notice, that there was this different entity, or did you know that earlier? It was, we say that was the first notice. Now, the circuit court used an imputed knowledge rationale to suggest that the, the inclusion of the name Costa Crociera 
within the definition section gave us what I would call constructive notice. But in terms of actual knowledge uh, that, that we had sued the wrong party, it was the answer which was filed after. Well, you, you don't — I didn't understand you to uh, deny that the ticket made it very clear who, who operated the, the ship. I, I'm not do, sure. Do you contest that? I contest that it makes it very clear, but I don't contest uh, that one could conclude that that provided constructive notice that, if read carefully, one might infer. Well, why not? Don't, don't you read the contract carefully be, before you bring a lawsuit? Well, actually, it was under definitions, and according to the definitions, Costa Crociera fell within the same definition of carrier as the steward, the ship itself, uh, any uh, so you are con you either are contesting or you're not contesting that it's clear from the ticket. I had assumed it was clear from the ticket. I'm not con I am not agreeing that it's clear. I am agreeing that it provides constructive notice from which one might infer that. Not clear, but discernible. So you had so then then you had notice even before the suit was filed. It was on the it was on the ticket. We had what the circuit court referred to as imputed knowledge. I, now. I think did, there's did, a word. Did the name show up any place other than page one of the general conditions of passage? I don't believe so, Your Honor. That's, and this is what, an 11 page, very small print? It's an 11 page, small print document. And one thing mm -hmm. that bears mention is that reference is under the designation definitions, because respondent makes some hay out of the fact that we complied with other requirements, which are under a different heading, which says limitations of liability. But what we also had was that we purchased the ticket from Costa Cruz. It was sent by Costa Cruz. We had the pre-suit notice sent to Costa Cruz, responded by the, the gentleman under the heading Costa that says claims administrator for Costa Cruz. So there was certainly what I would call conflicting information at best about which was the name of the actual vessel operator. Not, not if you read the definitions on page one. And if you're not going to read all 11 pages before you file suit, I would think you would at least read page one. And that seems to me it made, made it clear. Well, it would all, under the same definition, the steward would be a carrier every bit as much as Costa Cochiera SPA. So it seems to me by that reasoning, you could conclude that the steward or the janitor is the vessel operator because they are likewise defined as the carrier in that definitional section. And, in fact, it also includes the vessel itself within the definition. So let's assume that my client had, instead of suing Costa Cruz, sued, sued Costa Magica, the name of the vessel itself. Most of the cases would say that an amendment like that to add the actual name, once you have identified the status of the defendant you seek to sue, falls within the subsection 2, which is addressed primarily to the constructive notice of the defendant, that they knew or should have known that they would have been brought in the suit, but for a mistake concerning the proper party's identity. The, the general focus of that second subsection, I think, is to look to whether this defendant knew or should have known that it was the intended target. Let, let me — I've been thinking about the Chief Justice's question. 
uh, where two people are pushing, you don't know which person, or two people fire the shotgun and there's only one pellet, you don't know uh, which gun the pellet came from. Uh, In that case, I think we could stipulate that even by reasonable inquiry, you wouldn't know. Uh, In your case, I think the difference, and I think the difference in the cases is that reasonable inquiry uh, means you should have known. So now we have a rule that excuses something you should have known, but doesn't excuse something you you couldn't have known, which seems odd. And because it's odd, therefore, maybe that's why it only applies to clerical errors. Well, actually, when it talks of mistake, it seems to me that the very notion of mistake connotes error. I had looked at a couple of definitions, dictionary dictionition definitions. Merriam-Webster's defines a mistake as, quote, a wrong judgment or, quote, a wrong action or statement proceeding from faulty judgment, inadequate knowledge, or inattention. So at least in that colloquial sense, the very nature of mistake implies some measure of blameworthiness. And indeed, it's hard to conceive of a mistake that couldn't be avoided. And I think that's the problem with looking to the ticket, because what the definition on the ticket essentially says is, with due diligence, you might have avoided the mistake. But in my view, and I think in the view of the language of the rule, that doesn't change the very nature of it, of being a mistake. Counsel, assume I accept your argument, and I am the cruise operator, or the cruise owner, cruise ship owner, and I look at the complaint and I say, I think they really meant me. But I think now within the 4M period, which is the period in which I'm supposed to reasonably know that I would have been named absent the mistake, here an answer is filed. And you're told there's a mistake. And you don't correct the mistake. What conclusion would a reasonable person at that second juncture make about whether you made a mistake or not? I think, and I think that's what the issue is here, which is assuming the complaint could be read as a mistake during the 4M period, wasn't that mistake corrected and you refused or failed to act? But let me respond both legally and factually. Legally, I submit that it doesn't make a difference because under the text of the rule, if during that 4M period they had the knowledge that you're suggesting, and which would be suggested by the respondent when they say, I think, if you had, if you had uh, filed the amended complaint and served it a month after the answer, it would have been timely. We would have done it. That acknowledges that there was a mistake. And once there is a mistake, if during that 120-day period they knew or should have known that it would have been brought against them but for the mistake, that knowledge doesn't evaporate by later events. As long as there is knowledge during that period. I that, that makes so little sense to me. Um, here, I think, and for the following reason, you seriously, I don't think, could contend that um, if you had sought to amend uh, a year later, that that would have been timely, correct? Correct. It, All right. But putting aside prejudice, okay. what the – lower court said was because your delay speaks to 
a choice, that that's the only thing a reasonable defendant would have assumed, that having been told that you sued the wrong party and you continued in that action, that you that that's what you intended to do, to sue that wrong party. Let me point out factually, and I, I did not stress it in my brief, the answer was filed on February 25th. Twenty-three days later, on March 20th, the Court entered a scheduling order which said you have until the end of June to amend your complaint to add parties. So it seems to me that a defendant faced with a court order that says the time for amendment extends till the end of June would not be drawing any conclusions that the plaintiff's state of mind had changed. And one difficulty with trying to look at different points during the 120-day period is that it seems to me you'd have a constantly moving target. If you say that we satisfied 120M at one point in time, but somehow that's not enough, and at a later point in time, maybe they didn't know it anymore, and then perhaps, I guess, in theory, you could have them again, if, if we had sent them a letter even after that and said, you know, we really did mean it, and then for some reason they concluded otherwise, you'd have a constantly moving target. Mr. That's Benger, would you explain one factual matter to, to me? I, I might have gotten this wrong, but I thought the answer was filed after the one year it had. had run. It had. So when the answer was filed, it was too late for you to come within the statute of limitations. Absolutely. And I thought that would be the answer that you would give to Justice Sotomayor, because yeah. when you got the answer, which was uh, filed after how many days? Uh, it was filed, I think, 24 days after the complaint. You, you had gotten that a few days earlier. You could have amended, and then we wouldn't be here. That's certainly true, Your Honor. And I think it also — I'm sorry. You, you have 120 days to amend, don't you, from the filing of the complaint? No, Your Honor. The 120 days is the time frame for, for the notice to the defendant. Right. It, it, 120 days after the amended complaint is our time for service of the amended complaint, complaint. on the new defendant. Mm -hmm. But I think that the point that is raised by Justice Ginsburg is this. Once we find out and the limitation period has already expired, school's out. If we tried to amend immediately thereafter, if we had made a mistake, we couldn't amend one day after expiration of the limitation period. So if we had acted immediately, we still don't get relation back unless we've satisfied the two criteria of the subsection. But if we do satisfy those within the 120-day period, then we fall in the safe haven provided by the rule, whether the amendment itself occurs one week, three weeks, or seven weeks afterwards. But, that, but the basic point is the answer didn't come in until you were already out under the statute of limitations. Correct. So from that point of view, nothing else matters. You were out when they filed their answer, and you could do nothing to cure that. We could do nothing to, as a matter of right, file within the limitation period. Did your amended complaint contain any new and material allegations other than the name correction? It, it actually was a second count, but it was the same allegations against Costa Crociera that had been made against Costa Cruz. We, we did not amend the theories of liability. 
And again, getting back to the question of status and theories, I think that's the critical distinction between this case and the cases they rely upon, the Ishirushalayim and things like that, where you're changing from an individual defendant to an institutional defendant or vice versa on a different theory. And, of course, you couldn't mistake an individual for an institution. And that, I think, is the line of demarcation that we're asking the Court to draw, and it explains why, in the lower courts, the decisions which present our paradigm all, or virtually all, allow relation back, whereas those that seek to amend the change from an individual to a corporation or vice versa often don't permit relation back. I thought that the only condition was that it had to arise out of the same uh, event or transaction, which would give you much more running room than, uh, than only, you assert. Only if you're amending against the same defendant. If you're adding a new defendant, you have to satisfy sub-I and sub-I-I, which, which look to the notice and reason to know of the new defendant. Mr. Bender, in addition to the uh, the mailing of the ticket. You said the mailing of the ticket came as a poster cruise. Were there any other connections between the plaintiff passenger and poster cruise beyond the ma- the ticket coming in an envelope that says coaster cruise? There was the cl- the pre-suit claims notice, which was sent to Costa Cruz at the Florida address in attempted compliance with the provision of the ticket, which says you must file notice to the carrier before filing suit. And you have to do that within 185 days. So we not only got the ticket from Costa Cruz, we bought it from Costa Cruz. The ticket itself, if you look at, I think it's 25A of the appendix to the petition for certiorari, there's a prominent uh, page which says Costa Cruz, cruise company next to a picture of the vessel. So we have that. Then when we file the notice, we send it to Costa Cruz. We get a letter back from a person who claims to be in a position to resolve the liability of the vessel over, owner signed by him as claims administrator for Costa Cruz. Those are the things. Pro- oh, and then we have prior to the commencement of suit, the Internet investigation about which Florida company is uh, registered to do business in the state of Michigan, and we look at the Costa Cruz website, which says Costa Cruciera with several offices in several countries, United States office, Costa Cruz, Florida. So those are some of the things which give rise to Mr. Bendor, can, can I come back to your — I'm not sure why it matters — but it seems to me you're giving too narrow an interpretation, and I would not like our opinion uh, uh, to read uh, any more narrowly than the statute allows. Uh, it seems to me that if you uh, assert a different claim arising out of the same transaction, you would be able to amend. If you will look at C1C, which is what you're asserting here, right? C1C says... The amendment changes the party or the naming of party is, uh, against whom a claim is asserted if Rule 15C1B is satisfied. Then you go back to 1B and it says 
the amendment asserts a claim or defense that arose out of the conduct, transaction, or occurrence set out. It doesn't say there has to be the same claim. There's no question we satisfy that. Everybody agrees. I understand that. That's why I don't understand why you're arguing a more narrow, uh, a more narrow interpretation. Because unfortunately, you're home free with, with B. Unfortunately, C then goes on and says, and if within the period provided, sub I and sub I I. So. Oh, yeah, but, but those are the only things we, we have to argue about. There's that's no correct. doubt that you, uh, are asserting, even if you're asserting a different claim, it, it certainly arose out of the same transaction. Or event, didn't it? Certainly. No okay. question about that. Uh, if the Court doesn't have any additional questions at this time, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Thank you Counsel. Mr. Glazier. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. There are, we suggest, two issues before the Court. The first is the legal question of whether a plaintiff's knowledge about the identity of the proper party can preclude a finding that there was a mistake concerning the identity of the proper party. That, we suggest, is in some ways the easier issue because there are, there's abundant authority from the Circuit Courts of Appeal and from this Court in Nelson versus Adams, USA, where the Court said the, uh, the rule requires a mistake. In that case, there was no mistake. Mr. No mistake if you happen to know it, if you happen to know who the right party is? Correct. Ever? Yes. Have you ever driven a car where your wife has said, turn left? And you've turned right? Has that ever happened to you? Yes. Was there anything you didn't know? What the facts are here, Your Honor. No, I'm asking about this question. My hypothesis. You know. Okay. <laughs> Was there anything you didn't know? There is nothing that you did. Correct. Did you do it by mistake? Yes. Of course you did. That's happened to every human being. There are millions of instances in which people do things by mistake. We're in I fact, think your wife made a mistake. I don't think <laughs> <laughs> a mistake. No, my wife does not make mistakes. I think I make mistakes, and sometimes I make mistakes knowing all the facts, and so do you, and so does everybody else. So I never heard of this thing that you can't make a mistake knowing all the facts. But anyway, here we have a person who didn't know all the facts. What the judge says is he should have known all the facts. Where record does it say he did know all the facts? Where in three different times the plaintiff was informed of the facts. So let me say on the drive. That's a different matter. Well, My wife told me to turn left and I turned right. Okay? Well, I, but I didn't take it in. Well, so, so that's a different matter. Where does it say he did know the facts as opposed to he should have known the facts? The circuit court refer, uh, talks about imputed knowledge. We disavow that. There was no need for imputed knowledge in this case. One imputes knowledge to someone who does not have knowledge. Courts and lawyers make that up. You don't have knowledge. But I just want the citations to the page. I wasn't challenging you. I just wanted the citations. There to the are page where there's a finding that, in fact, he knew that this company called Costa Cruz in Italian is the same as the company called Costa Cruz in English. I take it Crocieri means cruise. It, they are they're separate corporations. Yeah, yeah. There's one is called Costa Cruz in Italian, and one is called Costa Cruz in English. There's and I just want to know where it says in the record that the client or he, the lawyer, actually knew, actually knew that he should have sued the one that spells its name in Italian. They're separate corporations. There's nothing I didn't in the ask record that, that question. says. I'm asking for a record citation as to where there is a finding that this particular plaintiff knew that the Italian company called Costa Cruz was, in fact, the one he should have sued. 
there is I'll a write them finding, down and look at them uh, the finding on page 19A of the district court opinion says 19A of, 19A of the cert petition says her failure to timely name Costa Crocieri SPA as a defendant. I thought what the district court did was impute the knowledge. No. no. The district court did not impute knowledge, and this is an important point. The circuit court imputed knowledge. Where does it and say we, that? Where does it say that on well, 19A? Um, 19A, it's not precisely it, but it says her failure to timely name Costa Crocieri as a defendant was not the result of a mistake. It does not specifically say Well, I, I know. I would say in reading this that both courts have made the most elementary mistake of the English language in thinking that when a person doesn't know something but should have known it, that that's inconsistent with a mistake. That's the very definition of a mistake. Your Honor, this Now, all I want is some citation from you that shows that isn't what they thought. Well, the best I can do is the conclusion that there is not a mistake, but I, I need but to — But that's the conclusion. And when I read two sentences down, it said that they may have had constructive knowledge. The word constructive to me, when I hear I want to run out the door, because what the word constructive to me means is not knowledge. Oh, I'd like sorry, to — I'm not following that. Where, 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 where? I'm on page 19. Yeah, but he's talking about constructive notice or constructive by, that's, by, that's by the defendant, there. not Absolutely. constructive knowledge but by the uh, — right. Well, then what, what is the — where is the page that it says that the plaintiff had actual as opposed to imputed knowledge? The — there — there is not that sentence in okay. the opinion. What there is is the plaintiff made a, um, a conscious choice. The facts of the case are, first of all, before the lawsuit is filed, the plaintiff has the ticket. There is no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, that the plaintiff or her attorney read. Is there any other than the, that one page on the ticket that against the, the mailing envelopes that she got that say Costa Cruz? Is there anything in the entire record other than that definition page that includes carrier, that includes steward, anything else that tips her off that this is a different corporation? There are three different pieces of evidence. The first is the ticket. The ticket defines carrier as cost crociere. It is the only entity stated by name. It doesn't include stewards. What do you you say to that? I'm sorry, I didn't. It includes the stewards on the boat, according to your, your friend. It lists one entity by name, Costa Crociere, and it lists others by role. Now, there may be some dispute so over whether — Costa Cruz be perceived to hold one of those roles? Well, one might argue that there might be a number of different entities that might be a, um, a carrier, but there's only one entity — which is clearly carrier and disputedly What is the carrier. relationship between those corporations? Costa Crociere is, I believe, one level removed, an owner of Costa Cruise Lines. Um, Costa Crociere operates around the world. They have different companies that operate as sales and marketing agents in different But are they, are they sister corporations and no. parent sub? Or? Costa Crociere is parent, and I believe there's a, a, a corporation below them, and then that corporation owns Costa Cruise Lines. Well, it's below them. I mean, it owns all the shares in its, in its subsidiary company? Yes. Um, you know, the, the, the definition of carrier includes independent contractors. I mean, as I, I, I would — other than that they're more closely related, I can see someone thinking, well, uh, Costa Cruise is at least an independent contractor with which 
Costa Crociere does business. There, there might be more than one carrier, but there is one carrier identified by name. It is the first car- It is the first person listed. Costa Crociere is the carrier. I, def- I suggest that if one reads the first page of the ticket, one might have questions about whether there might be some other entities that are carriers, but there is simply no doubt that Costa Crociere is the carrier. And if, and you, went, know- if you went to their website, which was mentioned, for Costa Cruz, there would be a tab that says, our ships, our ships, and one of those ships is Costa Magica, whatever. Yes, our ships, and it identifies Costa Cruz as the cruise operator. That's the information that's given to passengers in the United States who are going to book on these ships. It says Costa Cruz, our ships, Costa Cruz is the operator. That's what was being put forth to the public. What, what the relationship between the parties was governed by the ticket. The ticket says for example, the claim against the carrier has to be filed within the Southern District of Florida. This claim was filed in Southern District of Florida, but they did not sue the carrier as identified in the ticket. And the question is, was there a mistake concerning the identity of the proper party? So it shouldn't no. matter that this confusion was caused in large part by this entity that advertises in English under the name Costa Cruz and identifies Costa Cruz as the operator the largest European cruise operator is how Costa Cruz is identified in, in the advertising. We, we believe that the ticket is clear and that governs. But even if one would disagree with that, then we move forward. If there were any confusion, there's an answer filed. Costa Cruz Lines is sued. Costa Cruz Lines denies that it could be held liable, says it wasn't the carrier. The, it and the answer is filed conveniently after the one-year period has run. The answer is filed, but the question of whether the defendant knew or should have known that there — it would, would have been sued but for a mistake, the inquiry there is not within the limitations period. It was until the 1991 amendment, which followed the Schiavone case. Well, but I don't — I mean, there's some — sharp practice going on here. Paragraph 10 of their complaint sues Costa Cruise Lines because saying they owned, operated, managed, supervised, and controlled the ocean-going passenger vessel. And it's the same lawyer for Costa Cruise as for Costa Crociere, right? Yes. Okay, so that lawyer looks at this and says, aha, they made a mistake. They named the cruise line rather than the name in Italian. So I'm going to wait until the statute of limitations runs, and then a couple days after I'm going to Say, aha. The statute of limitations is not the measuring period. It was before the 1991 amendment. Now, what happened here is the answer is filed, which makes clear defendant defendant Costa Cruise Lines denies it was involved with the ownership, operation, or management. That's Joint Appendix 30. Did the answer say the statute, the one-year period, has run? Was that raised as a defense in the answer? It was not raised in the in the. It was not raised as defense in the answer. Um, It it, it was not. When was it raised as a defense? It was raised 10 weeks later in a motion for summary judgment, which was still within the Rule 4M period. And that is the crucial period. If, upon reading the answer, which says the — But the Rule 4M period concerns when you can serve. It doesn't say — that the statute of limitations is any more than what was the term of the of the passage it was one year. Well, 
they, the Rule 4M period is awfully important because Rule 15C turns on, since 1991, on the Rule 4M period. If during the Rule 4M service period the, it became clear to Costa Crocieri that it was an intended defendant, that it would have been sued but for a mistake, then the complaint against Costa Crocieri would relate back even though it was not timely filed. Now, that, if that, that assumes, that assumes when, when uh, what is it, uh, 1C2 knew or should have known, uh, it says within the period provided by Rule 4M. Now, in the early part of that period, uh, it, at, at, at one point in the period, you should have known. At another point, uh, because of the answer was filed, you shouldn't have known. Well, and you're relying on the fact that they filed an answer, which, uh, uh, I'm sorry, that, that you filed an answer, which made it very clear to them uh, what the situation was. But was there any point, any, and all it takes, I think, is any point within that 4M period when you uh, you sh- knew or should have known? The, the answer we submit is no. When they filed the complaint, the complaint indicated a couple of things. First of all, they were suing Costa Cruz Lines, but they had read, the complaint made clear that they had read the ticket. They specifically relied on the venue provision of the ticket. So we knew that they had read the ticket, which clearly identifies Costa Crocieri as being the carrier. Where, Yet where, it's where, still where is the defense? I mean, the, the ticket says suit must be filed within one year of the date of any alleged injury. And where is the, that defense stated? You said it, it comes up ten weeks. In the motion for summary judgment, which, which is not in the joint appendix, it's docket entry 19, the, the affidavit, which is, uh, was filed with it, with the, uh, motion for summary judgment is in the, um, the joint appendix at, uh, joint appendix 33. And, uh, the motion, you know, the answer made clear that Costa Crocieri is the carrier which could be liable, not Costa Cruz. Yes, but, but there was no change. Being realistic about it, as I understand it, you're relying entirely on the uh, condition, general conditions of passage in the ticket, the fine print describing uh, the term carrier. That, that's what you, but the, do you take into account that the cover of the ticket, which is what the passenger would look at, uses Costa Cruises as blah, 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 Costa Cruz lines, and, so, and doesn't even mention the carrier? The Don't you think, looking at that ticket, if you were a passenger, you would think you were doing business with Costa Cruz? Well, Your Honor, Just looking at the cover. If one look- the, am, I, am I correct that on the cover of the ticket, the Italian name isn't used at all? On the cover, the Italian name is not used. The ticketing agent's name is And isn't is that what the, what the passenger would normally look at to understand who he's doing business with? Um, if one were to not read the ticket, yeah. Which on the page assuming uh, assuming no. the lawyer would would just look at the cover before he files a lawsuit. We we know. I mean, if this were a question of uh, uncertainty whether the lawyer read the ticket, that would be one thing. But we know that the lawyer read. Well, the I ticket. don't understand what the lawyer reading the ticket has to do with this question. Because the question is whether the lawyer made a mistake, isn't that the question? No. Well, and he did make a mistake. The, the principle is if one. 
knows what the true facts are, yeah. if one knows what the true facts are and proceeds in any event, then there's no mistake concerning the That identity. isn't true. Is in, in the English language, it's not true. I mean, I just, that's why I was giving you some examples. I don't know. Maybe there's some special legal language somewhere written in Blackstone, or maybe it's Lord Cook. I don't know. It says when you use the word mistake, don't use it in English. You use it in Italian. But, I mean, if we're going to use it in English, uh, there, it's not hard to find instances where a person would know, but he'd still make a mistake. Well, and it's even a fortiori. Your Honor. If he doesn't know, even if he should. We Isn't have, that true? What we have up front is the, the ticket. If we move past that, it's sort of a test case. All right, did this plaintiff really not? Or what possible reason is there that somebody who's hurt on a ship and has a lawyer and she has a broken leg and she'd like to get recovery would deliberately sue the wrong person? The plaintiff. Is there such a reason? The evidence in the record is that the plaintiff's lawyer looked at the website mm-hmm. and chose the United States Corporation. Yeah, and I understand, did he do it by mistake? If you were representing this person, would you want to sue the company that could give you some money if they're liable? Or would you rather sue the Bank of America that has nothing to do with it? Well, if it were, if I had to sue Costa Crocieri through the Hague Convention in Genoa, maybe a lawyer would do that. I, I want to ask you about that, because in, in your brief, you refer in, in your footnote on page 6 to requirements of the Federal Government, 44101-44103. So I looked those up. I discovered that 44103 says that it is a requirement, and you say you follow these requirements, that you shall establish under regulations of the FMC financial responsibility. And those regulations tell you that, at least as best I could read them, that you must furnish a written designation of a person in the United States as a legal agent for service of process. And they are referring to instances in which somebody on a ship suffered an accident. So since you say that you're complying with that, I would like to know the name and address of that person in the United States for whom uh, you must send legal process, because if obviously that had been on the ticket, that is precisely the man to whom this plaintiff would have sent the notice. I cannot answer the question now. Well, then were you correct when you said in your, in your brief that uh, this company, which you represent, does comply with 44103? My understanding is the answer yes, but I, I cannot address the specific question. I simply it is relevant, I think, because it adds to the confusion if they are under a legal requirement to have a service, an agent for, to receive service, and then they not only don't do it, that they don't have it printed on the ticket, and they get everybody mixed up by having the same name in English or a very similar one and announcing someone you're supposed to serve, and then it turns out to be not that person you're supposed to serve. It's a mysterious person that you can't find. But the question that seems odd. I'd like to know what the explanation is of this. Well, the question is not a more generalized blame explanation, but under the rule, the language of the rule, whether — Costa Crocieri knew or should have known that the action would have been brought against it, but for a mistake concerning the proper party's identity. And the, the most problematic case, of, part of the case for the plaintiff is why, when they were told in the answer that they had not sued the proper party, that Costa Cruz Lines was not the carrier, was not the operator, but Costa Crocieri is, why did the plaintiff not 
do anything. But, um, but may, we, let's clarify that point. I'm looking at 3A, which is the Court of Appeals' opinion, and it says that Costa Crocieri moved to dismiss, arguing that it had been sued after the one-year ticket period allowed for claims set forth as set forth in the ticket. Then the rule tells us that you have this much time to serve, and then the complaint will re- the the amendment will relate back to the date of the original filing. It doesn't change your statement, your defense. The one-year statute of limitations isn't affected. What is affected is the, com- the complaint will relate back if there's an amendment filed. But the one-year statute of limitations remains, and you didn't file your answer till that, that time had but run. If, if during the 120-day period, you know, it ha- the Rule 15C happens to rely upon the measuring point, but service is not the crucial point. Within that 120-day period, if the plaintiff had done anything, anything at all to indicate that she had not sued Costa Crocieri because of a mistake, then the complaint would have related back a very easy yes, case. Yes, the relation back is different from the point at which the statute is run. The statute runs after one year. Then, if she does what the rules say, it can relate back to the date of the original filing. The fact remains that you didn't file your answer till after the limitation period had run. Yes. Yes, we did not file the answer. They filed the lawsuit on the eve Why of the Why does that even matter? I'm not really sure I, I'm, I'm following this argument. Let's say that the answer was filed during the limitations period, and the lawyer, the plaintiff's lawyer is a solo practitioner, and he or she is out of the office because the lawyer's on a cruise and doesn't come back for two weeks. And by that time, the limitations period has run. It's still a mistake. And if — Where do you see in — the question on which cert was granted has to do with imputed knowledge. Where — do you see in the text of this rule anything that picks up the concept of either imputed knowledge or actual knowledge? It just talks about a mistake. We, we do not rely at all upon imputed knowledge. The Court granted review, but we don't think there is imputed well, knowledge. Where, does, where do you get — where in the rule is there anything that relates to the reasonableness of the mistake? What if it is the most foolish, negligent mistake you can possibly imagine? Is it not still a mistake? The — Rule contemplates by its structure that the mistake will be the cause of the reason why the, per- the plaintiff did not sue the party. That's not what the rule says. The rule doesn't talk about um, what kind of mistake or why. The rule says what the defendant should have known. And so when you read this complaint, it's very clear you know you're the carrier. Yes. You know Cruz the other line, the sales agent can't be the carrier, correct? We so it's either a factual or a legal mistake. There's no other way to read that other than there is a mistake. And then? Because you, then you have to answer Judge Justice Breyer's question, which is what conceivable reason that is not either negligence or unintentional or inadvertent or just plain stupidity, However you want to define it, 
that someone who's injured would want to name a party who wasn't responsible for the injury. The most injury. powerful evidence is simply when they were informed of the claimed mistake, they did nothing for 95 days to indicate in any manner whatsoever that it was a mistake. Well, that's they have evidence from which the, the absence of a mistake might be inferred. I agree with that, but that doesn't establish that it wasn't, it wasn't a mistake. Well, I mean, this, this, whether something is a mistake ultimately is a factual issue. There's a legal question of whether a plaintiff's knowledge of the identity of the proper party can preclude a finding of a mistake. But once we get past that, but if the counsel, don't, what you're really talking about is whether once the answer was filed, they were dilatory in making their motion. I, I, I don't understand how you can argue that the day you received this complaint, you didn't understand that some sort of mistake had been made. The day that the answer came in, you might start to have a doubt because of their delay in the motion to amend. But doesn't that go to a 15A question, whether the judge should have given leave to amend because of dilatory tactics? Isn't that a 15A question, not a 15C question? Well, the delay in moving to amend can be a 15A, but 15C requires the judge to determine whether it was a mistake. And here, in essence, we have a test case. Well, the plaintiff is claiming that the reason why she did not sue Costa Crociere Is there anything in the face of the complaint that would suggest anything but a mistake? In that forget it. I'm, I'm being very specific. On the face of the complaint, if what you read that. Yes, I believe there is. There's, the complaint specifically ma- makes clear that the plaintiff's lawyer read the ticket. If Where does it say that? Where does it say, I know that the carrier is Oster Crociere? Where does it say The that? complaint certainly does not say that. What, what the complaint says is that Costa Cruz, the operator of the vessel, injured me, correct? It says that the — And is that an accurate statement of fact? That — it's not an accurate statement of fact. So no, I would have said the previous paragraph 9 says the plaintiff has complied with all the pre-suit requirements of the passenger ticket. So you know they read the ticket. Right. And the paragraph before, venue is proper in Broward County as the defendant's passenger ticket contains a form selection. So we know when Costa, Costa Cruz lines or Costa Crociere learns of this, we know that the plaintiff has decided — Is that a Freudian slip? No, no, because we are — no, we're not, because we're not disputing — That's the mistake. No, we are not — we are not disputing the notice issue. What — what is clear is they have read the ticket, and despite that, they have decided to sue Costa Cruz lines. They made a mistake, right? They read the ticket, and despite that, they made a mistake. No. What? We don't think so. Why is it — But again, if we move past it, right? I object to your relying upon the — the answer as — as establishing compliance with C little 2, because C in the prologue says, is satisfied if within the period provided by Rule 4M, and there is at least some point within that period before the answer was filed. And if within that period, before the answer, you knew or should have known that it was a mistake, 
it seems to me you lose. You, you understand what I'm saying? I, I understand what you're saying, but there's nothing in — And, and the, the only thing you could rely on for that short period before the answer is filed is simply the ticket, but right? There's nothing in the rule, um, the ticket and the complaint. There's nothing in the rule that says that only uh, events up to the point of the running of the limitations period or the service of the answer are relevant. It is throughout the — within the — Well, you're reading within the period to mean throughout the period. It doesn't say throughout the period. It says if within the period — Well, the, the district court, which is serving as the fact finder there, looked at all the evidence, and powerful evidence is the service of the answer, which identifies the — Well, I think it's an important issue uh, with respect to the statute, and I don't think we can — uh, treat cavalierly whether within the period means uh, throughout the period. And that, that's one of the issues here. I, I have one, one question about the face of the ticket, uh, the one with the picture on it. Uh, is it Costa Cruz or Costa Cochiere that got this big award for best four? I, I don't know the answer to that. Pardon me? I, I don't know the answer. It says Costa I'm, Cruz is I'm, make the assumption that it's the cruise line, Cochieri, that got the award. So the ticket itself confuses the two companies. The is that a mistake, incidentally? <laughs> if I'm right, is that a mistake? I — Your Honor, <laughs> clearly, as you said, Costa Crocieri is the vessel operator. Um, the ticket makes it clear on the next page, the very next page, the first how page. How many — if you have a thousand-page ticket, how many pages do you have to read? Here you only have to read one. Uh, but this is the first one. Well, th this is — One I pointed out to you with the mistake, that's the first one. It, it's, it's sort of the cover. The ticketing agent here, Costa Cruz Lines, adds the cover. The first page of the provisions say Costa Crociere is the um, — uh, is the vessel operator. But again, if one looks at — Motion, answer, there's no response, no response, and then a motion for summary judgment. Still, nothing. If the plaintiff had merely said in an email or a phone call, hey, I made a mistake, then it would be clear, an easy case. But they did not act despite being informed, despite being informed in the answer, that um, the identity of the proper party, and in the motion for summary judgment. The trial court, serving as the trier of fact here on this issue, had to make that decision. Maybe court would uh, another judge still puzzled because the rule C just requires is describes the state of mind of the defendant. Correct. C one and two, isn't that right? Uh, correct. And yes. Uh, is it not true that under one the defendant did receive such notice of the action it would not be prejudiced? That's yes. clear, isn't it? And is it also true that at the time they received the complaint, they knew or should have known that the action would have been brought against the carrier instead of the, of the broker? The, the answer is how you get along around the plain language. Our answer is no, and especially considering and then the events they don't think show that the, the You is. don't think that the, the agent didn't realize that they would have sued the carrier if they had known the, the identity of the right party? What is known is that they had the ticket. They still decided I to sue the cruise lines. They were talking about the mindset of the defendant. And to say you think that they wouldn't have sued, they would have sued the broker instead of the carrier? Well, it's absurd. The events later on demonstrated that even after the plaintiff was informed of the, the identity of the proper party, they continued to pursue the claim against the ticketing agent. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Bender, you have nine minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, 
Obviously, from the questions, the Court has a good grasp of the facts and the issues and our arguments. I'd just like to clarify a couple factual points. The District Court ruling didn't rely on the ticket at all. What the District Court said was, I adopt the legal premise that if you knew before the filing of, before the running of the statute of limitations but didn't sue, that would not be a mistake. And here, says the District Court judge, they filed their answer after the statute of limitations, and that's why you lose under a rule that requires that notice before the statute of limitations expires. That was the District Court rationale. The Circuit Court was the one who relied upon the imputed knowledge notion that is now, I think, disavowed by Respondent himself. With regard to the — This is sort of an equitable rule, isn't it, this mistake? We're going to, you know, equity takes account of such things. It seems to me very reasonable to say if the mistake is egregious, uh, it doesn't apply. I, I think now one gets into a wonderful process of trying to identify mistakes on a scale of egregiousness. And like, how many points of egregiousness would it take? And I think that's beyond the statute or the court rule itself, which just uses the plain language mistake. I, I would have thought your answer would have been this has nothing to do with equity at all. It's just the interpretation of a legal rule. Certainly. And, and the rule itself, I, I, I understood Justice Scalia's point to be that uh, the interpretation of the rule is designed to be liberal in its application to avoid the forfeiture of potentially meritorious causes of action over technical mistakes which have nothing to do with the merits. And I, I thought that was the sense in which you used the word equitable. The other point I'd like to make, even though it's, in my view, legally insignificant, is their argument regarding the nature of the delay. Their motion for summary judgment was filed on May 6th. Two days later, the Court erroneously dismissed the lawsuit for a period of approximately a month. It was then reinstated on June 5th, and our response, which sought relation back, was filed on June 13th. So in addition to the, the scheduling order, there is a one-month period of time in which the case was erroneously dismissed. So if it were significant, we could say there's not significant delay. But the ultimate point is it's legally beside the point. Uh, if the Court has no further questions. Slightly tangential, but is there a reason to suggest the Federal Maritime Commission look into this? Because I, I, I read the regs, I don't understand quite what's going on, because it seems to me they have a rule that's designed to prevent this situation. It, it company, well, is that true, what I'm suggesting, or not? You know the area better. I, I don't know. I'm not a maritime lawyer, Your Honor. But I, I think certainly if the Court's opinion were to note it, the Maritime Commission might well take a, a hint from the opinion and look into it. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you Counsel. Counsel, the case is submitted.